0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. I want to give a big thank you, big shout out to the Bible Center family. Thank you for being a part of our TV broadcast and also of our online broadcast. Thank you for being with us. Those of you who are here with us in person, thanks for being with us today. And we're going to dive right in to the message. The Pew Research Center tells us this. The Pew Research Center says the majority of Americans say race relations in the United States are bad, and of those, about seven in ten say things are getting even worse. Unfortunately, racial discrimination continues in many parts and in many hearts of the United States. According to the FBI this year alone, 60% of hate crimes in the U.S. are motivated by race or ethnicity. Most of us have heard of George Floyd, the unarmed African-American who died in Minneapolis, Minnesota, back in May. And after a rogue police officer had his knee on his neck for about nine minutes, Mr. Floyd was handcuffed and laying face down at the time, and repeatedly told the police officers, I can't breathe. I'll never forget what one of our police officers on our deacon board told me not long after that. I'll never forget it. He goes, Matt, there's nobody who despises a bad police officer more than a good police officer. And I could just feel the weight of his words and for all that they do for our community and, and those few who make these kind of terrible choices, what that does for their reputation. Two autopsies determined that Mr. Floyd's death was a homicide. The officer who knelt on Mr. Floyd's neck has been charged with second degree unintentional murder and second degree manslaughter. As of the time of this broadcast from the last I heard, everything is still pending uh, concerning their trials. George Floyd's death follows the killing of Ahmad Arberry, a 25-year-old African-American man who was jogging near his Georgia home on February 23rd of this year. He was confronted by two armed men in a pickup truck. He was shot and killed in broad daylight. Charges of racism have pervaded this tragedy from the beginning, and though the killers admitted to the deed, no arrests were made or no charges were filed for over 2 months after the shooting when finally the video of the shooting was made public. And I think rightfully so. Many are asking, would would the same outcome have happened had it been a white man jogging and someone from another ethnicity behind the gun or behind the wheel? It highlights a unique anxiety that has long troubled runners. Those in the running community say that, Matt, you can run just about anywhere... In Charleston. But my friend, African-American friend says there are places that I cannot run or times of day that I cannot run in those places because of the color of my skin. The deaths of George Floyd and others have, have just added to this racial tension that we experience in our world today. And so today I want to bring a message simply entitled, uh, The Story, The Biblical Story of Race and racism, the biblical story of race and racism. Now, let me admit at the outset of this message that I am not the expert on all things racism. I grew up in a beautiful neighborhood, uh, but mostly hung out with people who looked like me and and think like me and had the similar culture as me, except for maybe a few times on a few mission trips, I've never been a minority in my life. I know I have definitely never been the victim of racism in my life. And so I don't stand before you today somehow as the authority on all things racism. But actually, I don't stand before you on any subject I preach as the authority on that subject. Our authority comes from the Word of God. And so today, we're going to look at God's Word and just see what God's Word has to say. What does it say about the story of race and racism what does jesus invite us to do about it individually what's he inviting us to do about it as a church what should we be teaching our children and our grandchildren about race and racism and what errors have crept into our society but even more even more fearfully have crept into the church or christianity that we need to correct thankfully today we're going to discover the solution together from God's word. And and my goal today is not to make a political point, but my goal is to make a biblical point. And actually, my goal is to make much of Jesus. And when we see Jesus's love for the world, Jesus's love for us, my prayer is that people will then begin to see Jesus through us. If you're the note-taking type, I want to encourage you to pick up the app, download the app Uh, You can get it there in your app store. It has all the sermon notes. Now in most of my sermons, there's usually 50 or more verses uh, that go along with it. And so I'm just trying to provide them there for you to study through the week. We're not going to look at very many of those uh, today, but I would encourage you to get the notes and follow along to see all the scriptures connected with what I'll say today. Here's what I want you to know. Here's the first idea that I want you to know. Number one, God created the human race with predictable unity and beautiful diversity. He created the human race with predictable unity. We're gonna talk about that in a minute, and beautiful diversity. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter one and verse 27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So when we talk about predictable unity, we're talking about the way we reflect God's image. We are made in the image of God. What is that predictable unity? But then when we talk about beautiful diversity, we're going to see in a minute that we actually reflect God's imagination, all of God's imagination seen in his creation specifically in humankind. We reflect God's image, predictable unity, in a number of ways. We we project God's image spiritually. God made us in his image, spiritually speaking. Back in the book of Genesis, we see that when God created Adam, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's what makes us different from the animals. There's not only a human life, a physical life to us, that all the animal kingdom shares, but there's a spiritual, soulish life to us. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul teach in the New Testament that there's a spiritual nature to us as well as a physical nature to us. We're also created in God's image relationally. Relationally. God, by nature, is relational. We saw a few weeks ago when we had the sermon on the Trinity that in eternity past, the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Spirit and the Spirit loved the Father. In eternity, they've been relational by nature. And so when God says you're made in the image of God, that's not only a spiritual truth, but that's also a relational truth. That's why we crave, even those of us who are raging introverts, we crave community, we crave relationships. God created us in his image rationally, rationally. Remember what Jesus said in Mark twelve thirty: love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Luke chapter two and verse 52, we find that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Romans chapter one tells us that all humanity No matter where you're born, when you're born, all of us can cognitively comprehend God just by what we see his fingerprints in nature. God's created us rationally in his image. We're also made morally in his image. Back in Genesis chapter one, after God created everything, including humanity, God said, It is good. God created us with this moral. Sense to us. We're going to talk about how that went rogue uh, later on. But God also created us in His emotional image. The shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. The Book of Ecclesiastes says there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. God gave us entire books of the Bible that deal with our emotions. The Book of Psalms. Uh, the Book of uh, We find in the Book of Lamentations the grief that he allows for us to feel. God created us emotionally. Over and over again in the scriptures, you see that God has emotions. God can be grieved. God can be joyed. So when we say that you're created in God's image, it's more than just one little thing. It's it's a diversity of things. You're also created in God's royal image. This is one that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. But in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God said that he made us in his likeness to rule over creation. In Genesis 128, God said that our job is to fill the earth, subdue it, and again to rule over creation. In Psalm 8, the entire Psalm, it's a short Psalm, but I would encourage you to read Psalm 8. And God talks about the beauty of humanity. Now, when we watch the news, there's not a lot of beautiful things that we see about humanity. But God created humankind for us to, to share in his royalness from the standpoint that we rule over creation. Thousands of years ago, kings and pharaohs notoriously built huge statues. And some do that even today. It was nothing for a fisherman or a merchant to float in through the Mediterranean and, and maybe to, to make port in, say, Lebanon or Syria, you know, or say, Lebanon, and, and to see a statue of Pharaoh hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. But that statue represented that the king is in charge of this place. The statue represented the king is in charge of this place. And that's exactly what it means for us to be created in the image of God. We're representations. We're not God, but God created us so that when all of creation looked upon us, they would know the king is in charge of this place. He created us with this sense of predictable unity. No matter where you're from, your ethnicity, uh, your nationality, we share these things as human beings But then God also created us with beautiful diversity. He created us with beautiful diversity in our maleness. One way is in our maleness and our femaleness. According to Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God created us male and female. We need not make those descriptions out to be more than what God intended. In other words, uh, you're not more male or more manly because of how many deer you've killed. I'm about to go deer hunting next week, and so I'm just putting that out there so everybody can hear. My wife can hear. You're not more manly for how many deer you kill. Uh, You're not more of a a female. You're not a better woman for how many pies you can bake or or whatever else the stigma is. Let's not add more to uh, what the Bible says, but I think we can all appreciate the differences in men and women and the way that they point us to God. There are ways that my wife and two daughters will point me to Jesus in ways that my son and my guy friends that I hang out with never will. Because there's just something about God creating us in His imagination, in maleness and femaleness, that show His beauty, that show His glory. But God also shows His imagination in our ethnic and racial heritage, and our ethnic and racial heritages. He created a diversity of ethnicities and races in his image for his glory and with his love. Now we need to remember Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 tells us that we all came from one blood. We came from Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve's race or their ethnicity is never mentioned in the Bible. It's never identified. Evidently, their DNA contained all the instructions needed for the variations of all humanity. Genesis 3.20 tells us that Eve is the mother of all living. So in the Bible, race and ethnicity are, are seen as gifts from God. They're intended to reflect His beauty just like the shades of the autumn leaves. Even ancient Israel itself Was diverse. While many of the characters in the Bible are, of course, Semitic, the story frequently includes individuals and groups from a wide spectrum of ethnicities. Abraham, for example, was from Mesopotamia, and ethnically, he was probably an Aramean or an Amorite. He and his family migrated to Canaan, where two of his descendants, Judah and Simeon, married Canaanite women while their brother Joseph married an Egyptian. Later, when God delivered Abraham's descendants from Egypt, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 38 says that a mixed multitude went with Israel out of Egypt. So in other words, it wasn't just one particular ethnicity, but it was a mixed multitude of all, a range of ethnicities were part of the founding, the refounding of this Hebrew nation. It implied that people from other ethnic groups, and we see that throughout the Old Testament, Rahab was a Canaanite, Ruth was a Moabite, and so forth. I remember the first time I heard about Moses's wife. You know that Moses's wife, according to the scriptures, uh, was from Cush, Cush, or in other places, it's translated Ethiopia, this was a powerful black African kingdom located on the Nile River just south of Egypt that played a big role in the Bible. According to Jeremiah 13.23, people from Cush or Ethiopia were notoriously beautiful and had rich black skin. Maybe you come from a background where someone taught you that, you know, that the ethnicities or races shouldn't mix which is always interesting because what really, anyway, what is, I'm not even going to go there. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Numbers 12, 1 through 15. You have Moses' sister, Miriam, and brother criticize Moses. You can read it. Numbers 12, 1 through 15. They criticize Moses for marrying a woman of another ethnicity. And it's the first time we see God gets angry. God gets angry at Miriam, strikes her with leprosy. His brother thinks they're all gonna die. And Moses pleads with God and begs God to forgive his sister and to forgive his brother. Just a beautiful example of racism in the Bible. We've seen that even where we live I love it that it's from this same region of Ethiopia where the first convert to Christianity, the first non-Jewish convert to Christianity came from. In Acts chapter 8, you remember the Ethiopian eunuch? We've all heard about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was from the same place where Moses' wife's family was from. This is something for us to remember. The first non-Jewish believer in the New Testament The first non-Jewish believer in the New Testament was a black African. What a beautiful, beautiful truth of the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, God made all ethnicities. And even when we get to heaven, this is what we're going to see. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one else could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Together, people from all over the world, together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God loves to show his imagination in his creation. He does that in two other ways quickly. He does that in the personal distinctions that we have, in hair color and eye color and such. God does that in hair color and eye color and such. He also shows his his diversity in our giftedness, spiritual callings and giftedness determined from the womb God created the human race with predictable unity and beautiful diversity. What a truth for us to remember this week, for us to remember as we engage with the people in our lives. But number two, regrettably, sinful actions and attitudes plunge the human race into disunity, division, racism, slavery, and selfishness. In Genesis chapter 3, Moses tells us the story of Adam and Eve choosing, specifically Adam, his sinful actions and his sinful attitudes, giving in to Satan's temptation to, to do something different than what God had said. He brought the curse of sin on the whole world. Therefore, peace was shattered. Shalom was shattered. Love and acceptance devolved into division and racism and greed and slavery. The Oxford English Dictionary defines racism like this. Racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism antagon, antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Now, racism isn't new. We saw an example of it in Numbers chapter 12. You can read through the Old Testament and through the New Testament and see that racism has just been part of the human existence really since the fall. But even right here, we find that such attitudes in Anglos towards non-Anglos since Europeans first landed in the New World Many European explorers characterized the indigenous peoples of this, what we now call the United States, as the heathen. They considered their race to be inferior by nature. One colonist described, I read this week, he described Native Americans as having little of humanity, ignorant of civility, of arts, of religion, more brutish than the beasts they hunt, he said more wild and unmanly than the unmanned wild country, which they range rather than inhabit, captivated also to Satan's tyranny in foolish pieties, mad impet pieties, wicked idleness, busy and bloody wickedness. It was this attitude that contributed even right here on our soil to the enslavement of African men, women, And children. Such horrific claims were used to justify the the system of chattel slavery, the personal ownership of a slave that enslaved millions of Americans. The first four slaves, four men and women, arrived in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. Planters quickly realized the enormous profits of slavery. And so by 1860, think of this. The U.S. was divided into slave and free states. And that year, census takers counted 3,950,590 slaves in the United States. Even our United States Constitution initially propagated racism. While the Declaration of Independence claimed that all men are created equal, the U.S. Constitution determined that enslaved persons would be counted only as three-fifths of a person for purposes of government representation and taxation. Article 1, Section 2, Paragraph 3. Slavery was legal in America until 1865 and the adoption of the 13th Amendment. The 14th Amendment in 1868 guaranteed the same rights to all male citizens, but not to the female citizens. And the 15th Amendment in 1870 made it illegal to deprive any eligible citizen of the right to vote regardless of color. Man, great. It was all fixed by 1870. Well, some of you who lived not that long ago, you know that it wasn't all fixed by 1870. However, even after the segregation in schools was was not made illegal until Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. The Jim Crow laws enforced racial segregation, and, and they weren't overturned until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That's only 15 years before I was born. And some of you were well alive and aware in those days, and I'm sure you have stories. Maybe you think, well, Matt, that happened back then. But thankfully, racism doesn't happen now. We're tempted to think that way. Let me encourage you with this. Just because we don't experience racism doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we don't experience racism doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I would encourage you to ask someone of a different ethnicity than you about their experiences of racism. Just ask them. Maybe you know someone that had a relatively good experience in their life so far, but it doesn't take long to ask somebody once they trust you to tell, for them to tell you their experiences. Tom Tolliver was a longtime Bible Center member and Tom saw, Tom. Tom Tolliver went when Bible Center started the Grace Bible Church downtown Charleston years ago. But Tom Tolliver is still a friend of our church. And anytime I can get around Tom, I ask him some of his experiences growing up. Tom's an African-American man. And Tom said that growing up, his dad had a Cadillac. And his dad was often getting questioned about why he had a Cadillac as an African-American. And he told me this, something I'll never forget. He said, Matt, I had to learn to do what's called the white man shuffle, where I had to learn to put my head down around a white man and just say, yes, sir, no, sir, and not look him in the eye for fear that I would get in trouble growing up right here in downtown Charleston. Regrettably, racism is going to be with us until the day Jesus comes. I'd like to be able to say that we're going to eradicate racism, but there's no way. It doesn't mean we justify it. It doesn't mean that we stand back idly, but there's no way we are going to stamp it out. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Racism's going to be here till he returns. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will the sign of your coming in the end of the age be? Can't wait until we can preach a whole message on this passage. But Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and I'll deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Now, if you're taking notes today, the word nation is the Greek word ethnos. Ethnos will rise against ethnos. This doesn't mean that one country's borders are going to rise against another country's borders. But the word here is that one ethnicity is just going to continue to arise against another ethnicity. In other words, Jesus said ethnic division, racial tension." as it escalates is just signs that that his coming is that much closer. And so we, we long for Jesus to come for we know that only Jesus can fix it, but regrettably, sinful actions and attitudes plunge the human race into disunity, division, racism, slavery, and selfishness. Number three, thankfully, Thankfully, when Jesus died on the cross, he planted a ticking time bomb in racism that will one day in the future detonate into nothingness. Now, there's a lot there, but I would encourage you to think on that. There's enough to, to meditate on for a week there. When Jesus died on the cross, he planted a ticking time bomb in racism that will one day in the future, when he returns, detonate into nothingness. The very heart of the gospel is a gospel that obliterates racism. John 3, 16, the very Bible verse that many of us learn when we were little that we teach our children and our grandchildren says, for God so loved whom? God so loved the world that he gave to the world his only begotten son, that whoever in the world believes in him Will not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans five eight. God showed his love toward us, and that while we, the world, was yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died on the cross for the world. Not just for black people or white people. Not just for Asians or not just people who were Irish. He died for the world. Let's remember that Jesus isn't white. Jesus embodied in valuing and empowering the marginalized. But let's remember that, that Jesus, Jesus from Israel, looked nothing like me. Maybe he looked nothing like you. The gospel of Jesus Christ obliterates racism. Notice what Paul writes to the Galatian believers. He says in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I love Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 shows us this ticking time bomb in racism. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one. That's Jews and non-Jews. has made the two one. And it says, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law. both groups, Jews and non Jews, every nation, every ethnicity has access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. I am so glad to declare that racism is temporal. Jesus isn't racist. The church isn't called to be racist. The kingdom isn't racist. And one day the new heaven and the new earth will have no racism. As you read the book of Revelation in chapter five, in chapter seven, in chapter 10, in chapter 14, in chapter 17, in chapter 20, over and over again, it says people of every tongue, of every tribe, of every language, worshiping at the throne. That is a beautiful picture. That is a beautiful thought. Therefore, number four, and lastly, what can we do with this truth? Therefore, Jesus calls us to treat all people with the dignity they deserve as image bearers of God. Jesus calls us to treat all people with the dignity they deserve, not because they're Christian, Not because they vote like us, not because they look like us or from our state. No, only because they're fellow image bearers of God. Listen to the truths of Leviticus all the way back in Leviticus. Chapter 19, verse 34, "'The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God.'" Matthew 7, 12 is the golden rule. Jesus said in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Mark 12, 30. So in everything, says, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Acts 10, 28. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Not just Jews or anyone impure or unclean. In verse 34 and 35, he says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. James chapter 2 and verse 9, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Jesus calls us to treat people with the dignity that they deserve as fellow image bearers of God. Here's what I want to ask you to do, just one thing. Sometimes we finish up a message, and I've got five things for you to do, but today I've just got one thing. I want to invite you to search your heart, right where you sit, to search your heart and ask the Lord to show you if there's any even just a little, if there's even residual, just a little bit of racism, prejudice, bigotry, or something that you don't mean to be those things. But ask the Lord to show you in some way if you're causing offense to a fellow image bearer of God. Maybe it's a joke you're laughing at lately. Maybe it's uh, somebody you avoid. Maybe it's a certain group of people that you stay away from Maybe it's a certain conversations you won't have. Whatever it is, ask the Lord to show you. I love this verse, Psalm 139. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you take a moment, take the next few minutes, ask the Lord, is there something in my heart that I am doing, that I'm thinking, that I am believing, that doesn't line up with the dignity you've called me to give fellow image bearers of God. There's a reason the old prophet in the Old Testament called for justice over and over again. Amos put it this way, let justice roll like a river, like a river, Let it flow. For more information, visit us at BibleCenteredChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.